We're going to be continuing our uh, walk through the book of Acts. Uh, so we will be in Acts chapter 5, and we will be looking at the first 11 verses that were read for us. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, and as you're doing so, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, have mercy on me and give me your grace as I preach your word. Help us as we deal with a difficult passage of scripture. I pray that your law would go forth and convict hearts, but that your gospel would soon follow and heal and soothe. This I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ever since Pentecost, the church has been making quite a stir in Jerusalem. Thousands of people professed faith in a man named Jesus who was crucified weeks prior, but who now, the apostles testify, has risen again. The disciples who dispersed when Jesus was crucified have a a newfound boldness and, and will not stop preaching Christ, though threatened by the authorities. Something has changed in them. These men even heal the sick and the lame. What is more, everyone in this new religious community shares one heart and soul, and they hold all things in common with one another. Now, fads come and go. Later in Acts 5, there's a Pharisee who points this out. Listen, he'll say, let this group, you know, play things out. And if it's anything like other religious movements we've seen, it'll, it'll die out sooner or later. But is that what the church is? Just a fad? Just a movement that has a, a lot of momentum to start, but that will fizzle out? If anyone in Jerusalem thinks this about the Christians, it'll be interesting to see how they react to what happens next in the church. As I said, everyone in the church held all things in common. An example of this is found in a man named Joseph, who the apostles call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he, as Acts 4.37 says, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Most everyone in the church is encouraged by Barnabas and his contribution to the church. But there are some who feel differently. Acts 5.1, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, on the outside, what Ananias and Sapphira do looks just like what Barnabas did. But there's more going on behind the scenes. Ananias and Sapphira see what Barnabas has done and how much admiration he may have received for his generosity. Did you hear? Barnabas has given all the proceeds of that field he sold to the church. What a blessing from God he is. Don't you agree? Well, the couple thinks, we want some of that. And we, and we could. We could get some of that. You know, we, we have a property too. What if we were to, I don't know, sell it for 40 grand and, 
And we said that we sold it for 20, though. And we could give the church 20 grand and be praised for our philanthropy while also pocketing 20 grand. It's a win-win. The word that is translated that he kept back for himself refers to robbing or embezzling. Now, as we'll see in a little bit, that doesn't mean Ananias and Sapphira had to give all the proceeds of their property. But as will also be more explicit later, Ananias and Sapphira tell people, or at least it seems that they told people, that they're devoting the entire sale to the church. And so, in that sense, they are robbing from the proceeds. But no one can know that, right? How will anyone determine what we really made off the sale? That's just between us. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to, to fool the church and the apostles. Does it work? In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, how Peter knows all of this, we'll see in a few moments. Ananias brings the proceeds, perhaps during a church service, this may be the time to bring contributions up to the front. However, whether the church is congregated or not in this moment, word will get out about Ananias' generosity and how he's so filled with the Spirit. Look what he's done. Notice for a minute, the scene. Because there's much more going on here, and it doesn't revolve around money. What does it take to know full well that you are lying to the apostles and yet are going to receive admiration for it? What does it take to walk down, down the aisle in front of God's people, knowing that you're duping them? knowing that people are going to come up to you after the service and thank you and, and sing your praises. And it's all a sham. And make no mistake, Ananias does not bring the money to the apostles in order to help the poor. He's not saying, I really want to donate this money, but I have to pay bills too. I'll just give a part of it. No. Look at what Peter says in verse 4. While it remained unsold... Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Ananias didn't have to sell his property. He didn't even have to give all the money from the sale to the church. He, he could have kept 20000 for himself while giving the rest to the church. And that would have been tremendously generous. But generosity is not on Ananias' mind. It's because he's missing something that Barnabas had. See, Barnabas is moved by the Spirit to give his money. The, the Spirit's compassion for the poor fills his own heart. But Ananias is moved by someone else. Satan has filled his heart. What does that mean? Is this a, the devil made me do it scenario? Well, it can't be that. It can't be that Ananias can actually blame the devil for his actions. Because just look at the end of verse 4. Peter asks Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? This is a voluntary act on the part of Ananias, much like how Barnabas 
voluntarily gave all his proceeds to the apostles. Neither the Spirit nor Satan forced these two men to do either things. So when you get up on Sunday, and let's say it's a Sunday where you really don't feel like coming to church, right? When everything in you is telling you to just stay in bed, you know, watch a movie, make breakfast with the family, just hang out, have some quality family time. Don't get everyone ready to come to church. You feel that, and yet you still come. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. He drew you here. Now, you may not think that. You know, every decision you made to get here was your own. It, it, was, it was voluntary. The Spirit didn't shake you awake and force you out the door without your consent. But he quietly moved your heart to come, and you obeyed. Now, that's not to say that if you don't come to church, that Satan has now filled your heart. That's not my point. My point is that both of these men act voluntarily, but Barnabas cooperates with the spirit in him as he is moved to give all his proceeds to the church. He listens and he, and he obeys, while Ananias cooperates with Satan. And he acts as though the Spirit is leading him. Now, if Peter had not said anything, no one would have known Ananias' offering was all a show. Notice the wording here. Satan has filled Ananias' heart. Ananias has contrived this deed secretly in his heart. We don't see the heart. And whereas the church is of one heart here, Ananias' heart seems far from the church's. Now, the text is not clear whether or not Ananias, along with his wife, are true believers. It doesn't, doesn't say any of that. In this moment, we see that Satan has come into Ananias, but we cannot see who truly possesses Ananias' heart. We can't say either way. Many times, I've done things that are not becoming of a heart possessed by God. But whether Ananias is a true believer or not is beside the point. Ananias here gives into his flesh and masquerades as spirit-filled while he offers up a lie. In fact, Peter says Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says at the end of verse 4, you've not lied to man but to God. Now notice, just as an aside, that early on the church understands the Holy Spirit to be God. He's not some force He's a third person of the Trinity. And Ananias has lied to him. What does that mean, though? What, what does it mean to lie to the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit deceived by Ananias? Did he not know what Ananias contrived in his heart? Is he surprised? Well, that can't be. The, the Holy Spirit, as we just said, is God. He sees Ananias' heart. He knows Ananias inside and out. In the privacy of their own home, while Ananias and Sapphira planned what they were going to do, the Holy Spirit was sitting right there, right there with them. And that's why Peter is able to actually call Ananias out. Well, how did, how did Peter know? Because the Holy Spirit has given Peter the knowledge of Ananias' heart. What Ananias thought was a secret just between him and his wife, the Holy Spirit knows and exposes to Peter and the rest of the church. I wonder if after this, Peter thought about Jesus' words in Luke 12 when he was warning about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed 
or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And if God cannot be deceived then, how is it that Ananias lied to him? We'll come back to that. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And people have speculated about how Ananias dies here. It's a little odd. But make no mistake, it's an immediate death. The wording is clear that Ananias dropped dead the moment he heard Peter's words. Also, verse 6 tells us, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him and buried him. So this happens quickly. This happens right away. Now imagine being one of the young men here. What was that like? Maybe we should add this to the list of requirements for ushers and, and crucifers. One, if, if, someone, if someone dies, one, wrap them. Two, carry them out. Three, go bury them. <laughs> How exactly Ananias dies here, though, what physically causes his heart to stop is a mystery. But notice the means by which it happens. When Ananias heard the words of Peter, now, does that mean Peter just uses extremely strong words and they, sh they shock Ananias and he's found out so he just has a heart attack and dies? Well, probably not. Especially because of what is going to happen next with Sapphira. But who do we know has the power of life and death just by the voice of his mouth? God. God, by the words of his mouth, he has the power to create life and to take it. And look at who he speaks through, the Apostle Peter. Now, there's a reason why the church back in Acts 2 devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, the church knows that God has set up his Apostles to be his spokesmen. Their teaching, spoken and written, and Peter's words here, are from God, not man. Ananias' death is an act of God. Now, the mood drastically shifts here in Acts 5. Up to this point, we've read a lot about the church rejoicing to see how the Spirit is moving in their midst. Acts 4, 33 says that great grace was upon them all. The favor of God is so clear in the eyes of the church. But then here, the Spirit's not stopped moving. But now the severity of God is clear. And it says great fear comes upon everyone. As we will see later, this fear extends outside the church as well. Now, the fear is pretty understandable, isn't it? I mean, just put yourself in that place. Imagine, you come to church on Sunday, you feel pretty good, you sing... Each hymn with conviction, you pray the prayers earnestly, you listen intently to the sermon as you are now, and you, you glean truth and really sense the grace of Jesus Christ in your life as you're looking at his word. Uh, you get in line to receive communion. And then, I don't think anyone here is named Simon, so then Simon in front of you, well, let's just say you know him, goes up to receive communion before you. Instead of going further, a voice from heaven speaks, and then Simon instantly drops to the floor dead. Welcome to Good Shepherd. 
Now, what goes through your mind if you see that? What, you know God has spoken. He's just taking a man's life before your eyes. You just sang about his grace. What do you see in that moment? Well, you see the one you've come to worship. He is the God who gives life and who takes it. And so fear would probably grip you right then, and you take the bread in the cup, but this time you're trembling as you do. Now, with that said, this fear of realizing God's severity should actually not keep you from coming to him. It should do the opposite. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Why Sapphira was not with Ananias, we don't know. But the irony here is staggering. (laughs) Sapphira starts off knowing uh, what Ananias has decided to do with the proceeds of the sale. She's conspired with him. And for the three hours that she's not at church, most likely, probably what's going through her head. Now, Ananias is bringing the money. He's probably, he's probably there right now. He's probably being praised for his generosity right now. Who knows what they're, they're saying about what we've done. And I can't wait to get there and show myself and have eyes kind of fall on me. And she's in the know with Ananias. Everyone else is in the dark. But when she does finally enter the building, she's not in the know. She doesn't know what has happened. And all eyes do fall on her, but not for the reason she expects. Verse 8, Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Let's stop right there. What's your response to this question? Sapphira enters the building knowing that she and her husband are outright lying. The deed's already done. And here's Peter asking to confirm whether or not the property was actually sold for the amount submitted. Now, I have been in Sapphira's shoes. I've lied to friends and family. I've also had friends and family look me dead in the eye, whether they suspected a lie or not, and ask me again about what I said. In those moments, I've been at a fork in the road. Do I double down on what I know is a lie? If I do, then I may not be found out, but I'll feel doubly guilty. On the other hand, do I confess that I lied? I'll have to bear the humiliation, but my my conscience may be cleared. And I regrettably have not always confessed at that moment. When at the crossroads of either hiding your sin or confessing it, what goes through your head? What is the benefit of hiding your sin? And what is the danger of confessing it? What does Sapphira do? Verse 8, she said, yes, for so much. She doubles down. Why? Why, why not confess right here? What will happen to her if she does? Well, surely the apostles will kick me out of the church. The believers will scorn me and my husband. will not receive any admiration. In fact, we won't be respected, but will be seen as a blemish on the life of the church. Now, I don't know if that's what Sapphira is thinking. Perhaps she doesn't care at all. 
Maybe she just wants to continue to lie and doesn't feel much regret at all. But both scenarios lead to the same conclusion. She does not believe that she can confess and be forgiven. But just remember, who is standing before her asking this question? Peter. Does Peter know anything about guilt and forgiveness? Peter denied Jesus three times. But did Jesus cast him out and never want anything to do with him anymore? No. Peter, knowing full well his sin, ran to Jesus and Jesus forgave him. Sapphira, though, does not choose the path of mercy and forgiveness. She stays in her sin thinking she can hide her heart from the apostles, from God. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Sapphira is going to face the same fate as her husband. Why? Well, God reveals here through Peter's word the real problem with Ananias and Sapphira what does it mean that they have lied to God? Well, we've already said it, it can't mean they actually deceived God. Well, Peter says here that it means they have tested him. The word here means to presume upon something. In this context, Ananias and Sapphira think God will do nothing. They think that they will get away with, with their plot. Surely God will just turn a blind eye and just take the money. It's a lot of money. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your service. He sees right through all of that to what he really wants, your heart. In testing the spirit of the Lord, Ananias and Sapphira seek to mock God, to act as though doing what the spirit is moving them to do, as if he won't see it. But Paul will later say in Galatians 6, you do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And while Sapphira and her husband try to mock God, God actually makes a mockery of them. Look at verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And Ananias and Sapphira lay down a false offering at the apostles' feet, thinking God won't care. But in return, they both fall down dead at the apostles' feet. Their fake worship is the death of them. And then verse 11, once again, great fear, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We just have to ask, why is God so harsh on Ananias and Sapphira? Well, if they are true believers, and as I said, we don't know. But if they are true believers, we could actually say God is being gracious to them in a way. He takes Ananias and Sapphira out of the game before they make more of a shipwreck of their faith. That could be true. However, wh whether that's true or not, this isn't the first time God has done something like this in the midst of his people. In Leviticus, 
God set up the priesthood in Israel. And he gave the requirements for what the priests were to do. And the priests and the offerings and in the tabernacle, all of this was also to, to show that God's presence was among the people. But right after God giving the requirements of the priests, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire, it says, a sacrifice that God did not prescribe. Nadab and Abihu presumed that God would not care. Maybe even presumed he wouldn't see. And so what did God do? Well, he struck both of them down instantly. Their bodies were wrapped, taken away, and buried. And why did God do this? God told Moses and Aaron, he said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. God made Nadab and Abihu an example and confirmed that the priesthood was set up by him, not any man, and that he is in the midst of the people. This is not a man-made institution. And now, in Acts, the new Israel is established. There are no longer priests like in Leviticus, but all believers are priests of God. That is, they in their lives and speech are to bring people to Jesus Christ. The religious community is not some fad here. It's not a man-made institution with a fake God. This is the new priesthood of God, and God is truly in their midst. And the church sees that, and so does the world around them. God, in the early stages of the preaching of the gospel, like in Leviticus, makes it very clear that he will not be mocked. He will not be fooled. But surely there are others after Ananias and Sapphira who put on a show and try to hide their sin. Right? They're not the only ones. Why doesn't God wipe them out right away? Well, God may not judge someone for trying to mock him the same way he does Ananias and Sapphira here. God did this in Acts 5 to make it plain this morning that he's not mocked. And those who do masquerade around him will in the end be met with the truth of who they really are and will receive judgment. Now, if you're here this morning and not a Christian, that's okay. God did not strike down Ananias and Sapphira to keep unbelievers out of the church. It's good that you are here. And if you are here wondering, what does God want from me? See here how God is not actually looking for a sacrifice. If you were looking for what you could give, he'd just have accepted the money from Ananias and Sapphira. But God's not looking for what you can offer him. You can't offer him anything, actually. Your heart is sinful. Everything you lay at his feet is impure. So what can you do? Well, there are two options for you. Either you can run and hide, not come to God because you are afraid of his punishment. But there's a problem with that. As we see here, there is no hiding from God. He knows you inside and out. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. And God is a judge. He will judge sinners and give them the punishment they deserve. We all deserve this. But this God also sent Jesus Christ to receive that punishment for you on the cross. So here, option number two. Instead of trying to hide from God, 
Consider what Peter said to do in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For he says later, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do not think God is here this morning demanding a sacrifice from you. The sacrifice he demands has already taken place. It was Jesus on the cross. No, God is not asking for your money, talents, or service to appease him. God asks instead for your heart, that you lay the burden of your sins at his feet, and he will take your sin from you and come to you and live within you, truly. Now, does that mean you will be perfect? That all your motives will be pure and holy from then on out? Well, you need only ask anyone here who's been a believer for what, five minutes? And you'll hear that that is just not the case. I used to think when reading about Ananias and Sapphira, man, I'm glad I'm not them. You know what? I'm not all that convinced anymore that I'm not like them. I'm more like them than I know. God gives us believers stories of judgment for really one reason. In Luke 13, Jesus is talking about a, a disaster that happened in Jerusalem. He says, those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What do you do as a response to Ananias and Sapphira? Were they worse sinners than you or I? No. We all likewise, without the grace of God, would do exactly what they did. So there's only one response. Confess your sin. Repent. Receive God's mercy in Jesus Christ. For the non-believer and the believer. But how do you know that you're not masquerading around? I mean, I don't always confess my sin right away. Does that mean I don't really trust in Jesus? I've doubled down on lies. Is God waiting to judge me? If you're here this morning worried that you are false, I have really two things to say to you. First, you're not alone. None of us have perfect motives this morning. You and I are in the flesh, which means every act of love and service to God will inevitably be tainted somewhat with selfishness. Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds, they're filthy rags. God doesn't need them. Our good works are not righteous because we do them. They are made pure by Christ in us. But really, secondly, you, you may think, is Christ really in me? I've thought this. What if I'm fooling myself? There's a preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who spoke to this in one of his sermons once. And we'll end with, with this. He said, I'm sure that every true child of God will stand at times in doubt of himself. And his fear will probably take the shape of a suspicion concerning his own state. He that never doubted of his state, he may perhaps, he may, too late. The Christian, however, does not belong to that class. He will at times begin to be terribly alarmed, lest, after all, his godliness should be 
but seeming, and his profession an empty vanity. He who is true will sometimes suspect himself of falsehood, while he who is false will wrap himself up in a constant confidence of his own sincerity. Now, that does not mean you cannot be assured that Christ is in you. But our assurance cannot be found in anything of ourselves. We're sinners. We lay nothing good from ourselves at Christ's feet. If you're afraid this morning or later this week that you might be fooling yourself, what should you do? Well, it's no use to probe the depths of your heart to see whether you're true or not. In many ways, you and I are not true. But when we simply put our trust in Christ and what he has done for us, then all that is is true in us is his. Christ in you is who is true. And so this morning, do not feel as though you must put on a show. Do not think God requires a sacrifice from you. Believe in Jesus. Confess your sin. Come to the table to receive Christ's body and blood given for you. And look to him and him alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we are not as we should be, but you know that. Lord, for those here who may not trust in you, would you draw them to yourself this morning? For anyone who who may be untrue, bring them to repentance. And for those who feel as though they are untrue and are burdened by this weight, comfort them and give them assurance through your word and sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.